it is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you and a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant, or you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, as if present I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need not to go out of the world. But I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what I do with judging outsiders, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, well, friends, uh, good morning. Uh, it's wonderful to see see you uh, online this morning, and uh, particularly if you're joining us for the first time, uh, great to see you. Um, if you are new amongst us, uh, one of uh, uh, our, our members will um, send you a, a quick message uh, through the chat function. And uh, it would be great if you can just uh, tell them uh, who you are and uh, perhaps even leave your email um, address with us so that we can uh, be in contact with you uh, down the track. Uh, my name's Huey, uh, if we haven't met before. Um, and uh, I must say, I I'm missing uh, all of you and everyone at church. Uh, it's only been a week of lockdown, but uh, it, it seems much longer than a week uh, not seeing you uh, face to face. And uh, my prayer is that... Uh, uh, the lockdown will end soon uh, and we'll be able to uh, get back together again uh, very soon. Uh, but uh, for the time being, uh, let's make the most of today. Uh, it'd be great if you can have your Bibles open to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, and I'm going to lead us in prayer and uh, we'll get stuck into, into this passage. Uh, let's, let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our time together this morning over Zoom. Uh, thank you that um, although we are apart physically, uh, that your spirit is with us. And we ask that your spirit might teach us this morning of your ways, uh, that your spirit would convince us uh, of the goodness of your ways, and that we might live our lives uh, not with the wisdom of the world, but with the wisdom of the gospel uh, that uh, has come to us in our Lord Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Uh, well, friends, uh, like many preachers, I like to keep a folder with helpful quotes and illustrations that I come across from time to time. And uh, here's an, an anonymous quote that I came across some time ago. Uh, it says this. When the ship is in the ocean, everything is fine. But when the ocean gets into the ship, then you're in trouble. Uh, and it's true, isn't it? Um, when the ship is in the ocean, but uh, the water on the outside is on the outside of the ship, then the, the ship can sail along nicely. But if the ship springs a leak, uh, think Titanic, and the water that is on the outside or the ocean that is on the outside gets into the ship, then you know that you are in trouble. Now, uh, as Ian mentioned, we are resuming a series uh, uh, on 1 Corinthians that we began at the beginning of the year. And uh, I wonder how much of it uh, you remember. But uh, I want to suggest that the quote that I just mentioned describes pretty accurately the problem of the church in Corinth. Uh, it was the problem of the outside world creeping into the church. It was the problem of worldliness uh, creeping into the church rather than the church being a light to the, to the nations and to the culture around them. Uh, you might remember that the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians uh, was really all about the wisdom of the world, the world's way of thinking, making its way into the church rather than the church being influenced by the wisdom of the cross. Um, so that um, uh, one sort of manifestation of that was the divisions that were starting to occur in the church. But if you flip through the rest of 1 Corinthians, you can see that this worldliness uh, had crept into the church in other ways as well. Uh, things like sexual immorality and the world's sexual values making their way in. Greed and idolatry and uh, things of that nature. Uh, in today's passage, you can see there in chapter 5, verse 1, that we are told of a sexually immoral man uh, in the church. If you're not aware, uh, sexual immorality in the Bible is any kind of sexual activity outside of God's intention for sex, uh, which is always uh, within the context of heterosexual marriage between one man and one woman. And so sexual immorality would include things like um, heterosexual sex before marriage. Uh, it includes things like active homosexual sex. It will include things like the uh, adulterous office fling and the watching of pornography and uh, the fantasies that are associated with that. But friends, notice the shocking nature of the sexual immorality of this particular man in Corinth. Now, we're told there again in verse 1 that he was engaged in uh, a sexual behavior that is not even tolerated among the pagans. Can you see? Now, that is saying something because, uh, like the city of Sydney, uh, Corinth was one of the most sexually degenerate cities of the ancient world. There wasn't much in Corinth that uh, the, the people of Corinth would not tolerate when it came to sexual uh, 
matters. But what is this man doing uh, in the church in Corinth? Well, you can see there that scandalously, he is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, um, I don't think that means he was sleeping with his mother because there is a separate word for mother uh, in the original language. But it's more likely that this man is sleeping with uh, his stepmother, uh, who may have been, you know, close, close in age to him. Um, and uh, you'll also notice that the church was tolerating this kind of behavior. Uh, you might have noticed uh, uh, that the church is described in verse 2 as arrogant and in verse 6 as boasting. I don't think they were boasting about what this man was doing, but, um, but rather they were arrogant in actually tolerating this sin in the church. Well, that is the greatest arrogance, isn't it? To tolerate sin and to say that sin doesn't matter, even though the Lord Jesus Christ spilt his very own blood because of sin, that is the greatest arrogance. Now, I reckon, friends, it'll be easy for some of us to be switching off at this point because, you know, um, we don't know anyone in our church who is this, you know, engaged in this kind of shocking behavior. At least I hope that's the case. But friends, I want to suggest that this passage is about much more than what God has to say, you know, if there's a person sleeping with their stepmother. For in verse 11, notice that Paul mentions things like greed and idolatry and drunkenness, which I'm guessing are things many of us uh, struggle with. In other words, this is a passage that is really about sin. And the question is, how seriously are we as a church to take sin? How seriously are we as a church to take sin? Well, the answer that God uh, gives here is that the church is to be serious enough to keep people out of church. And he's talking about church discipline here, isn't, isn't he? Uh, verse 2, if you have your Bibles. Let him who has done this be removed from you. Verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Verse 11, do not even associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality. Verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. Now, just to be clear, uh, Paul isn't talking about uh, here, um, you know, kicking everyone out of church who is guilty of sin. Uh, otherwise, uh, we wouldn't actually have anyone left in the church, don't you think? Uh, Paul himself describes his own person as the worst of sinners. But no, uh, what he is talking about is the unrepentant sinner. He's talking about kicking out someone who is defiant in the face of God's word and is committed to living in this sexually immoral way with no intention of changing. Further, uh, this process of kicking someone out of the church is to be a slow process. 
Uh, it seems in verse 1 that the matter was brought to Paul's attention some time ago. Uh, in verse 9, it seems that uh, letters were exchanged as the church worked out what to do. And in those days, letters took a long time to send and to arrive. It seems as though this man was given every opportunity to repent of his sin and to amend his ways. But it's come to a stage where in verse 3, uh, Paul has now pronounced his judgment. And in verse 4, he instructs the church to, to assemble publicly and to exclude this person, uh, not just because they think it's a good idea to do this, but with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, um, if you uh, are somewhat familiar with the Bible, you might um, notice that this is very similar to what Jesus himself says about church discipline. Uh, if you have your Bibles there, come over with me to Matthew chapter 18. Uh, flip uh, just back uh, a few books to Matthew chapter 18, uh, where Jesus uh, is talking about church discipline there. And he says that, uh, you know, if a brother is caught in sin, then um, you are to take up the matter with him one-on-one. -on -one. And uh, if he still refuses to repent, then you are to take along uh, two or three witnesses. And uh, if he still stubbornly refuses to repent, then uh, you are to take the matter to the entire church. And notice uh, in verse 17, he says these words. He says, and if he still refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Uh, Gentiles and tax collectors were people that the Jews uh, didn't associate with in any way. In other words, now this command to kick out the unrepentant sinner from church is not only the advice of the Apostle Paul, but it is the consistent advice of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. People in the church are to be given every opportunity to repent. It mustn't be a hasty thing that the church does. But if a person refuses to repent, then they are to be excluded from the church. Now, why take this drastic and serious step? I mean, uh, to our modern years, and with the wisdom of the world, uh, it can sound so unloving to do something like this, don't you think? In a world that values tolerance and inclusivity at all costs, this kind of exclusivity can sound like a very mean and nasty thing to do to a person. But friends, I want you to see very clearly here that Paul says that this kind of discipline is good, firstly, uh, is good for the unrepentant sinner himself, and secondly, uh, it's good for the entire church. Uh, why is it good for the unrepentant sinner? Uh, well, verse 4, uh, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present and the power of our Lord, uh, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. 
Now, I'm told that these verses uh, in the past uh, were often used as justification for, you know, burning sinners at the stake. And so I think it's worth mentioning that uh, the destruction of the flesh here uh, doesn't mean, um, you know, putting people to, to physical death. I mean, later on in verse 11, Paul says, uh, don't even eat with such a one. Uh, it's very hard to imagine how you can eat with someone if they're dead um, because of the destruction of the flesh. Rather, what Paul is talking about here is excluding the person uh, in the hope that his sinful pride would die in him. Uh, it might look something like this. Uh, you know, this man um, has shacked up with his uh, stepmother. And, uh, and so the church calls him into the public gathering and, uh, and uh, he's kicked out. And so uh, he leaves church in a huff. But when he finds himself living outside the church in the realm where Satan rules rather than inside the church where Jesus rules, well, he begins to see not only that the church has no place for someone like him, but he also comes to see the bitterness and misery of life apart from God. And so he comes to his senses and he repents of his sin so that on the last day he might be saved. And so, friends, can you see how this kind of church discipline might be loving for the unrepentant sinner? It is, done, it is something that is done so that the person can come to their senses and ultimately be saved on the last day. It's not something that is done out of retribution, but it's for their own good. It's not something that is done joyfully by the church, but mournfully. But the hope is that they will repent and find salvation for their souls. I think um, every parent understands this. Um, and if you're a parent here, I'm sure you understand this. Uh, it's the unloving parent who never disciplines their child so that they are free to do whatever they want. Uh, it is the loving parent who disciplines the child for their good and exercises a loving authority over them. Uh, sadly, in our church, uh, we've had times when we've had to ask people to leave because of their unrepentant sin. Um, it hasn't happened often, at least in my time here, but it has happened uh, even recently. Uh, we didn't do it in haste. Uh, we gave the person every opportunity to repent, but when it became obvious that he had no intention of repenting, well, we asked him to leave. And when we found out uh, that he was uh, just starting to go to a church close to here, uh, we also contacted the minister of that church uh, to warn him of this man. Uh, it always grieves us to do this, but we always do it in the hope that the person would come to their senses and be saved on the last day. But the second reason Paul gives for excluding the unrepentant sinner is for the church's good. For sin is never simply an individual matter, but it is a corporate matter as well. 
Uh, you can see there in verse six that uh, we are brought into a into the uh, into a Middle Eastern bakery where a thing called leaven was used in in baking, and you can kind of see leaven on your screen at, at the moment. Leaven is not like our you know modern day yeast that comes in powdered form. Uh, rather, it was simply an old lump of dough that had started fermenting and bubbling away and taking a life of its own. And uh, it was mixed uh, with um, uh, uh, flour and, and water uh, in, in a new batch of, of dough. Um, and uh, the leaven would work its way through the dough uh, to, to make it rise. But you see, the, 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 the point here is if you leave sin to fester in a church by tolerating it, well, it would start to have an effect on the whole church, just like leaven will work its way through the entire batch of dough. Or just like the coronavirus in one person can contaminate many others. And so sin is never just an individual problem, but it becomes a problem for the, the entire church. How do you see sin like this, friend? It's often easy to think that when you see someone in the church living in sin, that it's, it's a private affair for them. And it's a problem for them rather than it being my problem and our problem, isn't it? But no, what Paul uh, says here is that sin is a problem for the whole church. I mean, how are we to teach our teenagers, for example, um, who uh, stay away from premarital sex and to be tempted by the world around them? Or how are we to teach those who are experiencing same-sex attraction in our churches to live the celibate life? Or how are we to encourage our workers to resist the temptation to have an office fling? If every week there is a man who is coming to our church who is openly living in sin and the church is welcoming that person every week as a, as a brother. Now, it is a very loving thing for the whole church to exercise this kind of church discipline when it comes to the unrepentant sinner. But here's the thing, friends. Now, is the church to do this in order to become holy as a people? Is the church to do this so that they can be holy and righteous and more acceptable to God? Well, no. For astonishingly, Paul says that the Corinthian church is already holy and is already sanctified in God's sight. Did you notice that? In verse 7, you can see there, verse 7, that he says that the Corinthian church is already unleavened because Christ has been sacrificed for them. And so the consistent message of the New Testament for Christians is that you are to be holy because you have already been made holy by the blood of Jesus. It's the teaching of be who you are. It's a bit like becoming a, a, an Australian citizen. Um, I became an Australian citizen in uh, 1983. And uh, from that day forward, 
um, I became more and more Australian. I started to enjoy things like Vegemite on toast. I started watching cricket and enjoying the fact that after five days, uh, a, a match can end in a draw. I started using Australian slang in my speech. You see, it's not that I did these things in order to become Australian, but it's because I was already Australian, I started to do these things, you see. How do we express the fact that we are holy and sanctified and unleavened people of God? Well, you can see there that it's by getting rid of sin in our lives. Verse 7 says, For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. But here we are taken back to the Exodus event, aren't we? If you remember, the blood of lambs were painted on the doorposts of every Israelite home so that the wrath of God might pass over them and they could be free from slavery in Egypt. And every year they were to celebrate this wonderful salvation by eating unleavened bread and getting rid of yeast from their or, or, or leaven from their homes. In a similar way, uh, Jesus is our Passover lamb who has saved us from God's wrath for sin. And we are to celebrate not by getting rid of uh, leaven from our homes, but by getting rid of sin in our lives. That's how we celebrate the gospel. In other words, the way we express who we really are as God's people is to take sin seriously. And for the Corinthians, it meant kicking out this unrepentant sinner. How seriously do you and I take sin in our lives? Has the world influenced us so much that sin has just become a, a trivial and important thing? In our lives? Or do we rejoice and celebrate in the gospel by hating sin and putting death to sin and making sin our business? Well, in the final part of our passage this morning, you can see there that Paul clarifies uh, a misunderstanding uh, that the Corinthian church had come to believe. Uh, in verse 1, it seems that Paul had recently, uh, had previously written a letter to the Corinthian church telling them not to associate uh, with uh, unrepentant, sexually immoral people in the church. But some of the church um, have misunderstood this to, to mean not associating with any sexually immoral person. Uh, you know, in church history, Christians have often swung between two extremes when it comes to sexual purity. Uh, I think we are living at a time when holiness and purity is not taken seriously enough. That's one end of the, the pendulum. But in ages past, the church took holiness and purity to uh, another level. Now, some of you may have heard of Simeon the, the Stylite. Uh, who was a Syrian monk who lived in the 5th century. And he took 
uh, holiness and purity so seriously that he lived by himself for 37 years uh, on top of a small platform which was on top of a little tower so that he could get away from other sinful people and other sinful influences in his life. Uh, if you are experiencing boredom uh, after one week of lockdown, uh, spare a thought for Simeon the Stylite, 37 years on top of a, a tower. Now, uh, this is a silly way to think if you, if you think about it, because uh, even if you get away from the sinful influence of others, uh, well, you are still left with your own sinful heart, aren't you? But what Paul says is that Christians are not to run away from those who sleep around or those who are greedy or those who are cheats or idolaters in this world. Otherwise, he says in verse 10, that you would have to go out of the world itself. But rather, when Paul speaks about not associating with sinful people, He's speaking about not associating with unrepentant sinners in the church. In verse 11, notice he says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Uh, now, friends, uh, I must admit, when I first read these verses, I wondered whether as a church uh, we have actually got this the wrong way around. Um, I mean, I think Christians are often very good at judging the non-Christian person, about their immorality. But, turn, but we are very good also at turning a blind eye to the sin and immor immorality of our own Christian brothers and sisters. What do you think? Uh, do you think there's some truth in that? I mean, Christians are often very good at speaking to the non-Christian world about morality, uh, perhaps hoping that, you know, Christian morality and values might somehow rub off uh, in this world. But what do we expect from non-Christian people, if not non-Christian behaviour? You see, friends, that's why our job, first and foremost, is not to speak to our non-Christian friends about morality in the hope that their morals would change but about Jesus, who can bring them forgiveness and ultimately a transformed life. And so what Paul says here is that we are not to judge the outsider. Leave them for God to judge, but we are to judge those who are inside the church so that sin does not get a foothold within the holy and sanctified church that Jesus had, has given himself for. We are to love one another enough to hate sin and to take sin seriously in the church. Uh, now, again, friends, this passage is often seen to be a passage about, you know, that man who 
slept with his ste his stepmother. And so we might think it has little application for us. But I want to say to us this morning that whilst you and I might not be attracted to our stepmothers, uh, well, we do know the temptation to sleep uh, with our boyfriends or girlfriends, even if we are not married to them, don't we? Well, we do know what it is to be tempted by greed. In fact, greed and stinginess with money toward God is not as easily seen as sexual sins because, you know, we keep our credit card statements to ourselves. But I wonder whether this is one of the great secret sins of Christian people. Or well, we do know what it looks like to be tempted to drunkenness so that we are ruining our own lives and the lives of our family who are too embarrassed to let anyone else know about it. And so, brothers and sisters, if you are living in unrepentant sin at the moment or if you are sliding more and more into sinful behaviour, then take God's word today as a warning from God. No one may know about your sin, but you may have not told anyone about it, such that we get to the stage of exercising discipline in the church. But make no mistake, God knows your sin. And later we will see that God says that the person who is unrepentant and continues to be unrepentant, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so come clean before God, confess your sin to a trusted Christian brother or sister, and repent of your ways so that you, uh, or you may find that some years down the track, you may have forfeited salvation itself. But I should also say that if you are someone with a particularly um, sensitive conscience, uh, because you do take sin very seriously, then passages like this and sermons like this um, can often induce deep feelings of guilt, even though we are struggling with our sin and, and fighting sin and uh, turning to God in faith and repentance every time we find ourselves uh, falling to sin. But I just want to say that what Paul is speaking about here is not the person who is struggling genuinely with their sin, but he's talking about the person who has decided in his heart that he does not want to live God's way. It is that person who is to be excluded. But even then, such is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that there is hope of repentance and a restoration into the fellowship of believers if they come to their senses. Let's pray together. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we thank you that by his blood, we are now your holy and sanctified people. And so please help us to live holy lives that reflect who you have made us to be. Help us to take sin seriously in our lives 
Help us not to believe the lies of Satan who would trivialize sin, but help us to look to the cross to see how much sin matters to our Lord Jesus and what a great cost was paid to put an end to our sin. Now, Father, if uh, there are some among us who are living in unrepentant sin at the moment, or backsliding in uh, certain areas of life. We pray that you would help them to repent. We pray that they may not make a shipwreck of their faith. And we ask that uh, that we as a church uh, might not take sin lightly, but that you would help us to see the seriousness of it and also to give us the wisdom to love and care for those caught in sin in ways that will lead to their restoration. For we pray these things in the powerful name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.